Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Welcome everyone here, Shabbat Shalom. Welcome all you watching at home on our YouTube channel. Pray that uh, soon, one day, uh, quickly, you'll be able to come back and, and worship with us, and, and uh, this plague will be uh, will be gone forever. And I want to encourage all the children to uh, be taking notes during the message or drawing a picture during the message of something you hear and discuss it afterwards with, with your with your family uh, over lunch. And we can all learn together of God's word and, and apply it to our lives. Amen. Well, Shabbat Shalom again. We're in a series on the book of Philippians. Today is part six. And today we're going to look at the first part of chapter four on the themes of joy and peace and how to overcome the enemies of joy and peace. So turn with me, if you can, to Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4, and I have the overhead as well. And Rob Shrewell, Apostle Paul, writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord's near. Do not be anxious for anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of shalom, the God of peace, will be with you. Amen. Now, in terms of, of walking in these, these two fruits of the Spirit we see here in this passage of joy and peace, uh, expectations are everything. So, for example, let's say right before I show you a hotel room, I tell you this is our honeymoon suite. And you walk in, and it's really not much. And you say, what a dump. But now, before you walk into the very same room, I tell you, this is a jail cell. And you walk in with very different expectations. And you walk into the very same room and you say, not bad. Pretty nice place. (laughs) Because your expectations are the filter through which you read reality. And through which you evaluate your experiences. And a lot of us as believers were cast down all the time uh, and losing our peace and our joy uh, because we don't uh, expect and anticipate and prepare for those things that attack your peace and your joy that are inevitable in life. So most of the depression that you experience and we experience as believers is depression over our depression. We're sad that we're sad and we're surprised that we're surprised. We're upset that we're upset. Uh, and if you weren't so upset about being so upset, you wouldn't be that upset in the first place. <laughs> so at least half of your being upset uh, is the anger and the guilt and the frustration over being upset. You say it's not supposed to be like this. And this occurs because you don't have the proper expectations. Because as a Yeshua follower, why is this true? Because you don't realize you have more enemies than a non-believer has. You now have more enemies than when you were a non-believer. You basically had one enemy when you were a non-believer. Who was that? It was God. You were at enmity with him 
the scriptures say. Look at Romans 8, verse 7. The mind set on the flesh, the carnal mind, the natural mind, is at enmity with God, is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, to God's Torah. Indeed, it's not even able to do so. Before you became a Yeshua follower, you were at war with God, whether you realized it or not. And you declared that war. And so there's a state of warfare between you and the Lord. But God is a wonderful adversary because he tries to save the very people who are trying to kill him. Imagine this time when I was a kid, there's a group of us who found this little stray kitten uh, trapped uh, on a rock in a rushing stream in a nearby creek where I, nearby where I lived. Don't know how the little kitten got there, but we wanted to save it, to rescue it. But the kitten was scared and thought that we were its enemies, thought that we were trying to attack it. So it would hiss and bite and, and claw and scratch at us whenever we tried to get near he was at war with anyone trying to rescue him. Finally, one brave soul just grabbed the kitten and, and picked it up, and during all the scratches and, and the bites and, and the cuts and the scrapes, the kitten was trying to kill the very person who was actually trying to save him. And that's the same picture the Bible paints of you and me over our relationship with God in our natural state. That's how we are by nature. We are born at enmity with God. We have a Yetzirah, this evil inclination against God. We're at war with him. That's why, for example, you don't, have, you don't have to teach a child how to lie. They naturally know how to lie. You have to teach them how to tell the truth. Because by nature, we're at war with God. But the minute you make peace with God, which is the heart of all other peace, the minute you make shalom with God through Yeshua the Messiah... The war is now over. And immediately all of God's enemies now declare war on you. But unlike God, these new enemies are not nice enemies. Before you became a Yeshua follower, your main enemy in life was a good guy, the Lord. (laughs) Someone who loved you, someone who cared about you, someone who's doing everything he could to wake you up. But now, once you become a Yeshua follower, all your enemies are bad guys. And your three enemies are the world and the flesh and the evil one, Hasatan, the devil. Now, if you don't have proper expectations, you're going to get mauled by these enemies. Think of warfare. If you don't go into warfare with proper expectations, you're going to be mauled. If you either overestimate or underestimate your enemies, uh, if your expectations are off, you're going to be killed in battle. So, for example, if you overestimate the enemy... You'll be intimidated, you'll be frightened, you'll either surrender or or you'll retreat too soon. And of course, if you underestimate the enemy, you'll go in with inappropriate or insufficient resources. As a believer, you need to realize you now have much meaner and nastier enemies. Not greater, not stronger enemies than you you had before, uh, but meaner and nastier and more spiteful ones, more spiteful enemies than you ever had in your life. It's like, for example, in World War II, uh, here's Switzerland, a, a neutral country, neither an ally nor an Axis power. Uh, so basically, they're not at war. But if all of a sudden they were to come into the war on the side of the allies, immediately things would heat up. The Axis powers would now viciously attack them. The Axis powers would become their arch enemy. In the same way as a Yeshua follower, whether you like it or not, you have enemies. The world, 
the flesh, and the devil. You cannot, you, they cannot destroy your salvation on their own, but they will attack you and they will try to bring you down if you cooperate with them, if you give in to them. Their goal is to destroy your peace and your joy and to enslave you. In fact, the scriptures say they come to steal, kill, and destroy. So let's now talk about what our, the fruits of the Spirit in our passage, joy and peace, and then look at these three enemies that try to rob you from it. It's all in the overhead. First, joy. Joy uh, is a buoyancy, a spiritual buoyancy. It comes when you're rejoicing in the Lord. So 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. For we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what's unseen. Because what's seen is temporary, but what's unseen is eternal. Paul says, we're down, but we're not out. We're crushed, but we're not destroyed. He's talking about buoyancy. He says, believers have a supernatural inward joy. This doesn't mean that we're immune or impervious to suffering. It means we're unsinkable. We're constantly getting pushed down, but we don't sink. We have a spiritual buoyancy. And this buoyancy comes from the unchanging privileges that we have in Messiah. Now, the opposite of joy is not sadness. Indeed, the Bible says you can be joyful even when you're sad. Uh, that's why Paul writes here in, in our every passage in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And it's critical you get a hold of this truth. Uh, it will enable you to be joyful in all circumstances. Now, there's a big difference between joy and happiness. Happiness from, comes from the comfort of, of, of having things you want, uh, having things go your way. But joy is a deep kind of, of rejoicing and assurance uh, and security of being found in Messiah Yeshua. It's a, it's a kind of mirth. There's a profound mirth deep down that says, I got the only thing that really matters. And this fuels and sustains your joy. We see this on a very small scale uh, in the secular world. Uh, let's say you turn in an assignment to your boss or to your teacher at school. Uh, and the boss or the teacher says, you know, this work really wasn't very good. But you know that you won an award for a similar project last year. So you know deep down you're capable and you're competent and you're gifted and talented. Uh, and you're therefore able to fall back on this deeper truth and deal with this temporary setback or, or unhappiness. Now, on a larger scale, as believers, we can and should do the same thing in the Lord. We can fall back on the deeper truth of who you are eternally in Messiah. So the opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. Because you have nothing that you ultimately rest in. It's hopelessness is the opposite. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, When you grieve, don't grieve as those who have no hope. On the overhead here, the counterfeit of joy, a kind of a false joy, is, as I said, happiness. Because happiness rests on feelings of comfort or pleasure, uh, and therefore focuses on the blessing and not the blesser. In Psalm 4, verse 7, King David says, I have more joy in my heart than they do when their wheat is full and their wine abounds. What he's saying is, they only have joy when the stock market's up. I have joy all the time. Because their joy is in the stock market, 
Where's my joys in the one who owns all the stock and all the companies in the, in the world? <laughs> and he'll give me everything I need. Now, to rejoice in the blesser means you can enjoy the pleasures, pleasures and the comforts that he gives. Uh, good food, good company. But you keep it in perspective. And you hold on to it lightly. Uh, and you know that they, they're there, uh, and you know that they're there to ultimately give you a uh, give a pleasure and, and praise and to point you to Him, uh, to the blesser. They're the small foretastes of the joy, the ultimate joy of the kingdom to come, the kingdom of God. The pleasures of this world are just dim hints of the ecstasy to come when we abide face to face with Yeshua and His messianic kingdom in the New Jerusalem. C.S. Lewis says, a sure follower allows his mind to run up the sunbeam to the sun. You don't stare at the sunbeam. You contemplate its source, the sun. In the same way as believers were to train our minds to run up the blessings to the blesser. And in this way, you can enjoy blessings from God. For example, you can enjoy a good meal because you know that it comes from the Lord and it's, an, and it's a picture of the ultimate wedding supper, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And the overhead. In this regard, C.S. Lewis, he writes this. We're to shine like the sun. We're to be given the morning star. If we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if you believe that one day God will give us the morning star, as it says in the book of Revelation, and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, is nonetheless prophecy. At present, we're on the outside of the world, on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning, but they don't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. One day, God willing, we shall get in. Until then, those faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the world are what we now call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, these physical pleasures are often too much for our present management. So what would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? The history of mankind shows we don't know how to handle even these lower earthly pleasures, like food and drink and sex. And these earthly pleasures, these physical pleasures, are just far-off dim echoes of the joy that comes from knowing not just the blessing, but the blesser. So C.S. Lewis, again, he says, what will it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? And then the overhead, he goes on to say this, yet that's what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. And the rapture of our saved souls will then flow over into our glorified bodies. C.S. Lewis, he's saying that a Yeshua follower should know, should know more about joy than anyone else. We should be able to rejoice over a good meal like, like no one else because we're thinking of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we're giving thanks to God for his goodness, 
which is just a dim reflection of what the ultimate kingdom will be like, the Malkut HaShemayim, the kingdom of God. So as believers, we should be experts in joy. We should be able, like, like, like Paul says here in Philippians 4, 4, to rejoice always. And we too often fail at this because we focus on the blessings and not on the blesser. And then he goes on to say this, look at Philippians 4, verse 7. And let the shalom, let the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, let it guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. So now number two, what do the scriptures say about peace? On the overhead. Here's my definition. Peace is confidence and trust in God's wise control over your life. The opposite of peace, therefore, is anxiety. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, and joy, of course, is the opposite of hopelessness. Uh, joy is, is this divine uh, mirth and optimism and the overhead. Peace has to do with steadiness, even in the midst of storms. That's, that's why the opposite of peace is when you worry and you have anxiety and doubt. Peace, therefore, has to do with confidence in God's control, his wise control over your life. Philippians 4, verse 6. Don't be anxious for anything. But in every situation... By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. So anxiety and worry is the opposite of peace. So where do you get this peace from? Look at verse 6, four, verse six again, Philippians 4, verse 6. It tells us, in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Note that it says, present all your requests with thanksgiving. So, so how can you be thankful for something that you don't even have yet? Well, that's the key. That's the secret. The answer is you thank God before you even make your requests before, because you're saying, Lord, whatever you do in response to this request is good. I'm thanking you for it in advance. And if I ask for the wrong thing or if I ask it for at, the, for at the wrong time and you say no or you say not yet, I thank you for that. If you give me something I don't want, even though it's going to be difficult for me, even though I may not be happy about it at the time, I know that you are a good God. I know that you're the Lord and I'm not. I know that you know what you're doing and that you can see the end from the beginning. And you know what's best for me even better than I know myself. So I thank you, Lord, for ordering my life. We thank God ahead of time. The things that you request of him is the secret. Uh, And the result is the Lord's peace, which again is confidence and trust in his wise control over your life. Now, there's a difference between the peace of God and peace with God. Romans 5.1 says being justified by faith, we now have peace with God, meaning the war is over. Uh, We've been reconciled to God through Messiah and therefore we're at peace with him. But now here in Philippians 4, it's talking about the peace of God. So what's the difference? The peace of God, the supernatural fruit of the Spirit, uh, it's a frame of heart that that God gives to you that's completely constant and solid uh, and confident no matter what. And we desperately want that and need that. Confidence and stability and calm no matter what your circumstances. The world does not know this peace. Look at what Yeshua says in, in John fourteen twenty seven. He says, peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't, don't be afraid. 
The world's version of peace is something uh, like the, the Marlboro Man. If you remember those old commercials, <laughs> the old cigarette commercials. Uh, he's always calm and cool and collected. This cowboy, the Marlboro Man, he's a st- his stoic attitude is always the same as he lights up the cigarette. People could be dying all around him, or, or he, could be re- he could be receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He's always the same. Yep. <laughs> That's all he says in any situation. He's absolutely steady. Nothing bothers him. Nothing upsets him. But that's a worldly version of peace. We need to realize that, you know, in the biblical Greek, the fruit of the Spirit is actually in the singular. In Galatians 5, it does not say the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. So look at Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Against such things there is no law. It's singular. All these are character traits of having the fruit of the Spirit in your life. They're all aspects of the whole. Now, now there's a way, therefore, without the Spirit, you could artifact, you could artificially manufacture some of these. You know, one or two of these traits. For example, uh, and, and then, so it looks like you have peace. But, but you're just a Marlboro man. But it's, it's this kind of false counterfeit peace at the expense of other fruits of the Spirit, at the expense of joy and peace, for example, and love. I'm sorry, peace, counterfeit peace at the expense of joy and love. So you can develop this counterfeit peace, which is actually a kind of cynicism, uh, an apathy, a way of hardening your own heart so you don't care about anything. So it looks like you've got inner peace. But it's just a worldly peace, not a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. It's only, it only can come from the Messiah himself, from the spirit of Messiah residing within you and changing you from the inside out. And the way you can tell it's not the true spiritual fruit is because it exists by itself. A person like this is not tender-hearted uh, and loving and approachable and humble. On the other hand, you could have what looks like joy and humility, but there's no peace in your life. You're just a naturally sensitive person. Uh, you're up and down all over the place, no peace, uh, very emotional. If you catch uh, if you catch this type of person when they're in a good mood, they seem very happy and sweet and approachable, but they really deep down don't have any peace or stability or self-control. Then there's the type of person who has self-control. Yep, perfect control, peace, always steady, very faithful, dependable. But when it comes to joy and sensitivity and sweetness and kindness and love and generosity, it's not there. They don't have it. Because only the Spirit of God can create all these things at once, at the same time. In his famous book on spiritual affections, Jonathan Edwards says, Therefore, the only way you can be sure that a person's love and joy and peace and patience, etc., is not counterfeit, is that they happen all together. It's the only way you can tell that any one of these character traits is really of the Spirit and not manufactured from some fleshly source. Because there's a symmetry there if it's from the Lord. They grow together. And only the Spirit of God can create them together. Only the Spirit of God can create an emotional, sweet, loving, tender-hearted, generous person who at the same time is also self-controlled and dependable and rock-solid and peaceful. Now, this doesn't mean you get it all, all right away, uh, but they're growing together. On the overhead here, 
Therefore, peace is confidence and trust in God's wise and good control over your life. Again, it's the opposite of worry or anxiety. Uh, this Greek word for anxiety, marimsa, um, it means to be in pieces. It means to be falling apart. It means there is no peace. And the counterfeit counterfeit piece is this kind of apathy or cynicism. And this counterfeit piece cannot coexist with tenderness and love and joy and kindness and gentleness. We need to be single-minded for Yeshua, not all in pieces. So how do you cultivate godly peace? Look at Philippians 4, verse 8. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely or admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Peace ultimately comes from the same thing joy comes from. Assurance of your salvation and daily communing with the Lord. Uh, so when the worries, when worries confront you, talk to your heart. In Psalm 42, the psalmist is depressed and he speaks to his heart, to his soul. He says this in Psalm 42, verse 5. He says, why you cast down, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, who is the psalmist talking to here? He's talking to himself. He's talking to his soul, to his heart. When faced with troubles and anxieties, the psalmist speaks to his heart. He encourages himself to remember the Lord's goodness and to trust in and to praise and worship the Lord. Don't forget, O my soul, he says, who it is who made you. Who it is who saved you? Who it is who sustained you and rescued you and redeemed you? Think on these things. Think on those things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Think on these. Speak to your heart about who the Lord is and who you are in Yeshua. That is your peace and joy. And then we get to the enemies of peace and joy. The three enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world refers to the system of values and and worldview and practices and customs and priorities and temptations that form a whole mindset of secularism, which refers to a focus on the present, on this material world as being the highest to the only reality and importance. Secular means nowism, the present. And the world tempts you in three ways. The lust of the eyes, materialism, greed, covetousness, covetousness, envy, the lust of the flesh, sensuality, immorality, pornography, appetites, addictions, and the boastful pride of life. Arrogance, vanity, pride, ostentation, conspicuous displays of wealth, luxury, comparison, competition. Selfish ambition. As you're going to see all three of these enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they overlap. So on the overhead, world in this is a mindset that says the here and the now, the concrete, what you see right now is all that matters. And to achieve or attain or enjoy these, the things of this world become your highest priority and passion and desire and drive. Worldliness, therefore, focuses on things like like money and wealth uh, and glitz and glamour, uh, on fashion, uh, on on carnality, uh, on fleshly sensuality, a fleshy kind of beauty, uh, and lifestyle and values uh, of the society in which you live. Uh, It mocks biblical values. 
It maps any concern for or belief in or reference to the world to come uh, and the spiritual realm and divine judgment and life after death. Because the world says that this present age, this olam hazeh, this present age, this here and now, is all there is and all that matters. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. The here and the now, the physical, the outward appearance, is all that matters. So that's the world. The second great enemy is the flesh. Uh, Your sin nature, your carnal man, and all of its lusts and addictions and appetites on the overhead. The flesh at its core is the selfish part of you that wants to be its own God. The flesh at root is the desire to be God. To call your own shots. To live for your own glory. Always needing, needing to be in charge and be in control. That's one form of the flesh. Selfishness and self-centeredness are the prime manifestations of the flesh. So, for example, here's a guy who, who's a non-believer... Uh, and seducing women is the way he lives in the flesh. It's partly lust. It's partly the need for power and control over others. Both are works of the flesh. Now, let's say he claims to become a believer. He stops seducing women. Now he's dealt with his flesh, right? But now in the, in the body of Messiah, he feels a need to dominate every Bible study. He pushes to be the head of his student ministry uh, and he insists on his opinion, winning the day on every issue. He lords it over everybody he can. He's power hungry, even within a congregation or a ministry. So has his flesh really been put to death? No. His flesh just got religion. He's just as fleshly and as carnal as he was before, but now it's cloaked in religious garb. That's the world and the flesh. And then you have the devil. The devil's job is basically the same as the world in the flesh, which is to destroy your peace and your joy. And here's the important point. The devil works through your own heart's sin. All through the Bible, the devil is connected to your own sin. So, for example, look at 1 Peter 5, verse 5. It says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time and cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Notice how Peter mentions these two sins here, pride and anxiety, and then immediately connects it with the devil prowling around, being after you. Now, is, is Peter changing subjects of his sentence here in this, in this passage? No, he's not changing subjects. He's deliberately connecting various sins with giving an opening to the devil. Paul says the same thing. Look at Ephesians 4.26. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. No bitterness, no resentment, no grudges, no anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. Notice again how Paul connects the sin of anger with giving the devil a foothold. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, we're told that, that an elder or an overseer must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the snare of the devil. Now here the sin of pride is linked to falling under the influence of the evil one. So what's going on in all these passages? We'll put this on the overhead. This is what C.S. Lewis says in his screw tape letters. He says, there are two equal but opposite mistakes that people fall into 
when it comes to the devil. Superstition and substition. Superstition means overbelief. Substition is, is underbelief. Some people have, have a superstition, which is unhealthy fear of the devil. They see him behind everything. Uh, they immediately want to do exorcisms on everybody. <laughs> because the devil is everywhere. They give him way too much credit. Superstition. On the other hand, some people are given to substition, where the devil doesn't even exist, or he's not taken seriously. He's just laughed about. They view the devil as some kind of fairy tale fiction. Here's like a, here's how I like to put it. The, the, the devil is like this particular kind of horny lizard that lives in the deserts of the Southwest. When you first approach it, the first thing it does in order to scare you off is it puffs itself up and it sticks out all its little spikes to make itself look really big and terrifying. And if that doesn't work, it sucks it all in, it turns over, it closes its eyes and plays dead. <laughs> That's a perfect illustration of superstition and substition. We're either deathly afraid of the devil and believe he's got this enormous pervasive influence over everything and everyone. We want to sprinkle holy water everywhere. <laughs> or we believe he doesn't exist. Uh, or there's, and there's no such thing. Or at least if he does exist, he cannot influence or oppress or attack believers. It's usually one extreme or the other. So we need to be biblical here. What does the Bible say? The Bible says the most common way the devil has a foothold in your life is through your own sin. Your sin is the piano, or your sin are are the piano strings. The devil is the piano player. Where does the music come from? A piano player without strings, right, Ben, cannot make any sound. (laughs) And strings without a piano player, they they can't make music either. On the overhead, you need them both. And therefore, the Bible says the devil and your sin are bound up together. And therefore, the way to deal with the devil is to deal with your sin. Similarly, with respect to your sins and your problems, there's often there more there than meets the eye on the surface. So for those of you who are substitious, look at all Yeshua himself says about the devil. Not to mention Peter and Paul and John. And the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures. Look at the metaphor used about him. Great dragon, roaring lion, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. The devil is real. And for those of you who are superstitious, who are always cowering in fear about him, or who see him behind every rock, the devil says the way you deal with, the Bible says the way you deal with the devil is to deal with your foothold, his footholds uh, that, that he, he, gets, he has in your life. William Grinnell wrote this classic work on spiritual warfare called The Christian in Complete Armor, in which he says this on the overhead. He says, if men hear a noise at night, they cry, the devil, the devil, and they run for their lives. But they carry the devil around in their hearts all day long. For If you have a proud spirit, or if you have resentment, or if you have anxiety, you are under his power. He is setting you in a precarious place. My friends, why don't you run from your pride crying the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentments and your grudges yelling the devil, the devil? Run from them in terror. When you have a grudge, when you're steeped in anger and bitterness and resentment, 
realize you are opening yourself up to evil spiritual powers. You are the piano, and Satan is playing chopsticks on you. (laughs) There's often more than meets the eye going on in your sins. Similarly, when you look at the, the problems of our country, the problems of this world, there's more going on than you can just see with your eyes. We think, oh, the right economic program. Uh, or better police, uh, or, or better therapy, or, or, or more, more school, better, more health care, and, and, and free health care, and better schools. They'll solve our problems. And of course they won't. Why? Two things. Number one, because government programs cannot change an evil heart. And number two, there's more to it than just a human element. There's more to it than just what the psychologist or the sociologist can deal with. Baba says this in Ephesians 6.12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the world powers of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So if you're superstitious, you're going to miss the fact that the only footholds the devil really has in you are your own sins and your evil and your pride and the impure thoughts you entertain. Instead of thinking only on what's true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute and of excellence and praiseworthiness. And on the other hand, if you're substitious, you've got to realize there was also a supernatural, demonological dimension to your problems. And these are only overcome by prayer and faith and fasting and the word of God and the Holy Spirit the Rach HaKodesh, and the blood of Mashiach, the blood of Messiah. So the enemies of your peace and your joy are the world and the flesh and the devil. And most people and most congregations and most ministries and most denominations tend to focus primarily on this one of these three things. But the truth is all three operate together. And so you've got to deal with all three. So, for example, the world may bombard you with commercials. Uh, and, and the lie they try, try to tell you, for example, is you if, if you if you want to be physically attractive, you've got to look like the people in these commercials. That's the world's influence. And then your flesh gets a hold of it. Uh, and it responds. And your flesh drives you to spend tons and tons, thousands of thousands of dollars uh, on clothes and shoes and handbags uh, and makeup and hairstylists and nails and, and diets and exercise programs and steroids and protein shakes uh, and medical procedures. Your flesh will drive you to eating disorders. Your flesh will drive you to, to sexual immorality. That's the world and the flesh. And when the devil comes along. He does two things. He has two basic assignments. First, he tempts you to sin. And secondly, when you do sin, he then accuses you and condemns you for it. <laughs> Indeed, the word satan, hasatan in Hebrew, means the accuser, uh, the, the prosecutor. The devil wants you to wallow in guilt and shame. He wants you to doubt your salvation, to question it. He wants to enslave you in sin. Now, the fact is, the world, the flesh, the devil, all three of these are your enemies. But if you only focus on one of these three enemies, you will miss the whole group. You're only seeing a piece of the problem. You're missing the whole. If multiple enemies are attacking you, you cannot aim at only one of them. The world and the flesh and the devil, they come after you. Try to get your conscience to go crazy. They try to bring up your sinful past. They try to debilitate you with guilt and shame. 
They want you to doubt your salvation. And when they convict you of sin, by the way, sometimes they may be right. You should not be sinning. Typically, the enemy's lies will be mixed with some truth on the overhead. That's what makes them so effective. And the enemy's goal is to get you here in the overhead. The enemy's goal is to get you to look more at your sins than at your Savior. They want to thereby poison your conscience. There's a great place in Pilgrim's Progress where there's a man named Mr. Conscience who's the watchman around the city. And if anybody tries to break into the city, Mr. Conscience runs around yelling, Awake! Awake! But Satan comes and he poisons Mr. Conscience to drive him insane. So he yells, Awake! Awake! when no one's coming. And he goes to sleep when a thief tries to enter in. And that's a picture of how the world and the flesh and the devil try to attack your conscience and poison it. And get you to look more at your sins than at your Savior. So let me encourage you. If you feel at all convicted by anything you've heard today, it's because the Spirit of God is working in your life. You have no desire for God and holiness and to turn from your sin unless the Spirit of God is working in your life. So if you're convicted, that's a good sign. That's a sign the Spirit of God is working in your life, number one. Number two, instead of focusing on yourself, focus on Yeshua the Messiah and what he's done for you. Everything else is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Messiah and being found in him. The world, the flesh, and the devil will try to keep you away from the good news, the gospel. So you defeat these enemies by keeping, by, by keep telling yourself the gospel, by, preach, by keep on, keeping on preaching the gospel to yourself. And number three, finally, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For, for every one look at your sin, take five looks at your Savior. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, put your mind, think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Let's stand and pray. I look the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Father, hallelujah, we thank you today for this great word from your scriptures. We thank you. We ask you, Lord, today for your supernatural joy, for your spiritual buoyancy that rejoices in you. Because we know, Lord, we know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Lord, your joy transcends every circumstance in our life and our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. So we can rejoice always, whether in want or plenty, whether in sickness or health, whether in good times or bad. Our joy is based on the assurance and the security of who we are in you, Yeshua. We put our hope in you. Lord, help us today to focus on you, the blesser, not on our temporary blessings. For the pleasures of this world are just dim hints of the ultimate ecstasy of, the, of your world and your kingdom to come. And Lord, help us to rest in your supernatural peace, the peace the world cannot give, but that only you provide. Help me, Lord, to have total confidence and trust in your wise counsel for my life. And therefore, to be anxious for nothing, but to trust in you uh, and that your peace, Lord, guard my heart and my mind. 
And Lord, finally, help me to resist the world and the flesh and the devil. Help me not to focus just on the, the here and now in this present age of the world, but to be kingdom-minded. Help me to crucify my flesh so it's not in control, but to yield my life to you. Help me not to sin and to give the devil a foothold. But help me Lord, only to think on what's true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and things that are of good repute and excellent and praiseworthy. Help me fill my mind with things that are of you, Lord. I pray this all in your name, Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.